Crossway Church Sermon Audio. All right, if you would open up your Bibles, please, to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. James is a, a wonderful book of practical wisdom through the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, but it is rich with the gospel, even though the gospel is not always explicitly explained in James in the way it is in other letters. Uh, the text we're going to be looking at is James 4, verses 1 through 10. And it's a, a meaty text. In fact, I probably can't do justice to the entire text. There's probably multiple ma- messages in a text like this. Um, and in this text, it also contains one of the most encouraging, comforting statements, certainly in James, if not in the entire New Testament. And we're going to see that in verse 6. Just a phrase that I think, um, I hope is more, would be a good bumper sticker phrase, but I hope, as it was said earlier, it would function much deeper than that. It would really function in reality uh, and all the depth that it's meant to have to us. I've entitled this morning's message, He Gives More Grace. He Gives More Grace. And the main point is this, there is more grace in God than sin in us. There is more grace of God's forgiveness, favor, power towards us, love towards us. There's more grace in God than there is sin in us. So James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And here it is, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves there to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And let's pray now. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. Your word read aloud is a blessing. Lord, your word read to us is a blessing. Your word has power that no man's words have because they come from you. So Lord, I pray that you would bless both the reading of the word and now the preaching of the word. That you would come in power, your Holy Spirit would help us. The God that is the unchanging, immutable God would now show his grace fresh to us this morning. Lord, please use this message to strengthen your people whom you love, whom you've purchased with your very own blood. 
In Jesus' name, amen. James, um, this wonderful book of wisdom, starts a number of sections with provocative questions. And so we see in James 2.14, if you just look across the page, it says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? He's asking a provocative question. You say you have faith, but where are your works? And then there's this discourse into talking about the relationship between faith and works. And in James 3.13, you have another provocative question. Who is wise and understanding among you? You think you're wise. Well, how do we know you're wise? How do we know that that claim is true? And so it's a provocative question. And then again, what we have in James 4.1 is another provocative question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now I'm looking out. The room's pretty full, which is wonderful to see as well. So, okay, well, who could have had a conflict on their way to church this morning? Or who may have a conflict after church this afternoon? My guess is someone may have had a conflict before, or someone will have a conflict afterwards. And whether that's with a spouse, or a child, or just wanting to be on time, there is something that maybe have happened. And if not, it will probably happen sometime this week. Right? What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? This is where we live. This is real life. It's not a platitude. It's not like we have the gospel and God loves us and we're, we're Christians and we're all the, and life's just this upward, you know, trajectory all the time. No, there's dips. Why? Well, there's quarrels. There's fights. And that not only is a relational thing, your heart can be disquieted when that happens. And we're all aware, I believe, of the painful effects of ungodly relational conflict. Growing up, I experienced this uh, a fair amount between my dad and my brother. Not my dad and me, but my dad and my older brother. Um, and they would have really serious conflicts. The kind that where my mom would take my sister and I out of the home. And it was very disquieting when there's something going on in the home and it's, it's raised to levels that are not only ungodly, but they're just, they're unsettling. And I remember walking out, my mom crying and my sister and I crying and, and there was just a you know, lack of peace. And then it never really got resolved. We just sort of go back into the home and life just sort of moved on. And so you sort of say, well, how do you function in a world like that? So I was the youngest, so I figured out ways to function. Well, I'm not going to provoke my dad because I see what that looks like. And I don't want to be on that end. So I learned a different skill set. How to placate. How to manipulate. How to avoid. And it was disquieting. As a pastor, I've seen the painful effects of ungodly relational conflict. And it can be very sad sometimes as there's, you see the damage that can be done. And unfortunately, I have participated in ungodly relational conflict. And usually with the people that I love the most. And I would love to tell you today, and, you know, and God has changed me so much, that's never happened. But within the last month, I was involved in an ungodly relational conflict with one of my children. One of my adult children. And it was not good. 
And it was very disquieting. It was, there was things in it was like alarming. I thought, well, how did I get so angry so quickly? And how did this thing escalate to where there's not a lot of self-control happening? Now, I want to tell you, in the good news, it's all reconciled. And there was things I needed to ask for serious forgiveness for. Because it was completely disproportional. So what, what is it? What is it in me? I'm 62. I've been a Christian for 55 years plus. Been a pastor for a long time now. I, I know this teaching. I've taught this message. And I've walked through conflicts that God has reconciled and restored relationships. But here I was yet again in something like, if somebody looked at his name and said, you've lost your mind. How can that happen? To someone who has the Spirit of God within them. Who has seen God's faithfulness and grace and has experienced even more grace over and over again. So, oh my, there was something going on. But it can be painful. And so I'm sure some of you have those experience, painful experiences. Maybe you're still carrying some regret of, a, of those things. And I hope this message will serve you. Well, this church, brothers and sisters, this church had relational conflicts. As did many of the New Testament churches, there was relational conflicts. There was conflicts between rich and poor. People were showing preferential treatment. You know? And it was based on how, you know, wealth well, that's wrong. We would know that's wrong, but it happened. And by the way, that still happens. So there was, there was a preferential treatment between rich and poor. That was a conflict. There were rival teachers. And it was actually not the teachers, but it was, who were you following? Well, I like this teacher. Well, I like this teacher. Sound like Corinth, right? They had different teachers. They all had favorites. And that created conflict. There was political activists in the church. How relevant that is to us right now. You had Jewish zealots who were saved, became Christians, but they were still hated Rome. Rome was an evil power. And even though I'm a Christian, we've got to do something. Rome's wrong. And there were other people saying, like, we're Gentiles. We grew up in the Roman. It's okay. And, and the church had some political divisions. I think about 2020 and I'm sure you've had endless messages on this kind of stuff. But you know how many articles I've read as a pastor in 2020 about working through with a divided church? There was not a week that came by that there was not an article that was even talking about pastoral discouragement in a divided church, how to walk through a divided church, how to help a divided church, and the divisions were over a number of things, which you can imagine. Mask, not mask. Now, looking out, you guys seem to have some unity. (laughs) But there there was division. And by the way, serious. And so I had some folks um, suggest at times, well, are you going to be careless and unloving? But whereas others are saying, well, if you do that, are you just giving into a conspiracy theory of pandemic and government overreach? Huh. I've got folks on this side concerned about health and this side about government overreach and conspiracy theory and pastors and this is why there were so many articles so whether it's mass politics certainly 
You know, one of the more, not the only, by the way, divisive area we've ever had in American history. Um, so go back, Civil War was fairly divisive. We actually had a civil war. 60s was pretty divisive time. But this last few years, pretty divisive. You're not, you're not different opinions, you're good or evil. It's good and evil. Everything's good and evil. And so these things be argument. And pastors are living in the midst of how can you not do this or how could you do this? I think about racial issues that created conflicts and pastors had to walk through that. And it's not the racial issue itself, it's how are we responding to the racial issues? Well, you should be doing this or you shouldn't be doing that. You should be esteeming this or condemning that. And there was division. Well, you know, folks, it's not new. <laughs> Let's not be surprised about these things. It's in Scripture, and Scripture's written to help and benefit and inform us. They had conflicts. Okay, so three points this morning about conflicts. One, the cause of conflicts. Two, the promise of grace. And three, the requirement of humility. So first is the cause of conflicts. And we're going to find that primarily in verses 1 through 5. The cause of conflicts, and it's not complicated. So we have this question that's asked, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And it's really answered with another question. It's a rhetorical question. And it says this, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain. So you fight, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There's this war within that's going on at this point. We want to serve God and others, but we also want to serve ourselves. We want to do both. And so there's this war that's going on, there's this conflict, and desires, brothers and sisters, are very powerful. Are they not? There's something that's frustrated. Look at the words that describe how powerful desires can function within you. These passions. He uses, James uses strong words to show us really the horror of sin. So it's war. There's a war within you. And mur- so war, murder, fight, quarrel. Those are big words. War. Fight, covet, quarrel. Folks, that doesn't have to be about just evil desires. This is not about, oh, I'm I'm coveting something evil. It's sometimes, it's usually more this, particularly for Christians, it's we're covering sometimes the right thing just too much. So that day that I came home from church, on a Sunday is when this last conflict happened. And it does, by the way, I'm glad for the resolution, it grieves me to this moment in some ways. He said, well, you know, it was a busy week. I just preached. We, have, we do two services. In New Jersey, we're only allowed to have 150 people in our auditorium, even though it seats 1,100. So we're like 14% occupancy. And that's what we do. So it means two services. And so I think, well, I could come home and say I was tired and just want peace in the home and not interested in resolving conflict in any, with anybody in the home right now. There's something else going on. And it was deep. And it resulted in strong expression. Not wrong that I'd want peace. 
Not wrong that I'd want everybody getting along. That's sort of a good thing. But what happens when you don't get that? What happens when there's a desire that becomes frustrating? Sometimes people just want to, I just want to be understood, right? Is that a, a bad thing? No, I just want you to understand me. What happens when the person you're talking to just doesn't get it? I just want you to understand. I mean, how many marital conflicts are around? The wife just wants you to understand and the guy just wants to fix it. So I, I heard you. And what, what can happen, and by the way, maybe this happens the other way around. So I don't want to be sexist here. But maybe it happens the other way around. But you, one person starts hearing the story. They already can finish the story, right? I know where this is going. And you can do this with your children. I know where this is going. Let's just cut to the chase. Let's just get to the last page. I don't need chapters of a dialogue. And narrative. I already know the solution. We've had this conversation. Let's get to the end and let's just speak to it and we'll all be done efficiently. People on the other side don't want that. No, I, I want to tell you the whole story and the whole narrative again. And I was looking for understanding, not solutions. And so what happens? Conflict. I want to give a solution. I want to be viewed as a heroic man who gave a solution. I want at the end of this conversation my wife to say, I just can't believe what an honor it is to be married to you. <laughs> I mean, wow, you saved us so much time by shortening this discussion. <laughs> you know, and you immediately, just like a prophet of old in the old times, you just came and spoke truth and I was set free. <laughs> That's not how it goes. And when you've been married more than a few months, you realize when you've talked too quickly, now you've now guaranteed that conversation is going to go twice as long. <laughs> because now you've complicated the conversation even more so. Right? We just want peace. We want understanding. Sometimes it's relax relaxation. Sometimes it's just a nap. Here's one I think the great injustices in the world. Okay? We want children to take naps, right? And they don't want to. Adults, we want to take naps and we're not allowed to. It wouldn't be better if our three-year-olds were coming to us saying, Mom and Dad, take a nap. I've got it. I want a nap. If you told me to, you're going to bed and I don't want to hear from you, thank you. Thank you. I'm going. I won't get up for hours. We just want something. And sometimes those little things we want, boy, they can spin out of control. Sometimes it's bigger things that we want. Understanding is not a small thing. That's not a nap. That's serious. I want to be understood. I want empathy. And I'm not getting it. You know, I want respect. And whatever that is that we don't get, there's a, a frustrated desire within us and war happens. Now, please understand... When, when we go to war with people that block our desires, this is, they, James doesn't leave us there. This ultimately is a God problem. This isn't just a relational problem. It's a God problem. So look what it says in verse 20, verse 2. It says, you desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covenant and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. But now he starts to move directions. You do not have because you do not ask. See, he's now starting to connect us with God. And not just one another. You do not have, you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now this has obviously got a financial component in this. But I think we can broaden that out a little bit. You're asking wrongly in this conflict. 
You're asking about what will serve you in this conflict. How do you resolve? What do you get out of it? And then he goes, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So this becomes a, a serious issue. And ultimately, we're not trusting the providence of God in our lives in those moments. And instead, what we're doing is we're asking for ourselves. We're not asking, what's God doing right now? We're really asking, what's what I want right now? And that's what happens. And it's a God problem. And actually, what we start to do then is we start to think and act like the world thinks and acts. And if you keep seeing in in verse uh, 4, when it goes on, it says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I think, so we don't want to, we don't want to act like the world acts. One of the things that can be alarming, concerning, discouraging, and I'm not talking about political positions, candidates, I'm not, don't, put this to any personality. This would be true at all times. So just limit this to I'm commenting to something that I'm not. But what can be discouraging is when I see Christians really take up the weapons of the world and act the same way. And you do see Christians angry, (laughs) fearful. You know, there's a Christian response right now. And what happens when you're fearful? Fearful people always want what? Control. Right? Fear, the antidote to, worldly antidote to fear is control. Can function in parenting. I'm afraid, so I want to control everything. Control, folks, is an illusion. It's an illusion. We do not control the world. But I think when you see, wow, there's people, this is disturbing where I see the name of Jesus in some of these things that have taken place. I think I'm not sure Jesus would be pleased with this response. I'm not saying he's affirming or disaffirming. I'm just not sure we're using spiritual weapons right now. We seem to be using the weapons of the world. And that's going to make us just like the world. The world needs to see a different, something completely different from Christians. I love the worship today. The sovereignty of God, the character of God, um, the, the statements of God's immutable. You know, why aren't we shaken with all the things around us that could shake us. But in one sense, if you're not paying attention, there's every reason to be shaken. There's economic reasons, there's political reasons, there's health reasons, there's political, I mean, there's governmental reasons, there's authority reasons, there's all sorts of reasons. You don't need anything going on. You can have your own personal reasons. All you need is go visit a doctor and have a bad visit and your world can be shaken. You don't need... I don't need global things and national things. i got personal troubles. In fact, I'm not even thinking about those things because my personal troubles are big enough. Right? We don't need crisis outside. Sometimes there's crisis right inside. So what keeps us in those things? Well, it's, it's God's sovereignty. It's the fact that he's unchanging, that his mercies are new every morning and great is his faithfulness. These things really start to echo in our hearts and they make a difference. So we don't want to act and respond like the world. And this is what's happening in this conflict. Everybody in the world knows, I want something in the conflict. Yeah, what do I do when I don't get it? Do we do what the world does? Fight, quarrel, war. Or do we do something different? Do we respond differently? And it's serious. 
I mean, Jesus, you know, or James is writing here, when we do it that way, we align ourselves with the world and we make ourselves an enemy of God. We're being unfaithful to God in those moments. And, and brothers and sisters, then it goes on into verse 5 where it says God has re- created and redeemed us to have a loving relationship with him. Look at verse 5. Oh, do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you? Now, human jealousy is not always viewed as a good attribute because it can function very poorly. But that's not what God's talking about. This is a, a, a fidelity of love. This is the jealousy I have over my wife and my children. That I just love them and I want the best for them and I would protect them and I want to have a relationship with them and I want them to experience goodness in life. And you know, there's something there. There's a jealousy. That's the kind of jealousy God has over us. It's not mean-spirited. It's not insecure. It's not demanding. But it's passionate and faithful and protective. So here we are in this first point, the cause of conflicts. Well, folks, here's the, the reality. Cravings underlie conflicts. So the question I want to ask you is, do you locate yourself in conflicts? Do you ask yourself the question? By the way, you can ask this in the middle of a conflict, in the start of a conflict. What do I want right now? What am I craving? I've been well served in the beginning of a conflict that actually went too far if I had stopped and said you're getting on the edge okay right now you're sitting you want to stand up to me the moment I want to stand up God's giving me a siren that you're in trouble because stand up means I'm impatient and now there's going to be some force of verbal words that are going to be strong and intimidating and I should have asked myself what do you want right now what do you want And I've done that, and there's times when that's really served me. What do you want? And I can articulate, what I want is this. Good, now repent of that and love. Repent of that and love the person. Repent of that and answer gently. Repent of that and trust me and not the the brilliance of your own words to get this person to see life the way you want them to see life. Trust me. Slow down. What do you want? And it's, it helps, it's a question that helps me to slow down. So that's the cause of conflict. It's these cravings within. Secondly is the promise of grace. Look at verse 6, just the beginning. I do love this. But he gives more grace. Folks, what a statement and what a comfort and what a hope. He gives more grace. Every Christian should be having that every day. So I think... Uh, we can be discouraged by ourselves. Uh, we can be certainly accused by the enemy. Uh, and he is a great discourager. We can be discouraged of the world around us. So we think this, oh, he gives more grace. When we fail and when we sin, he gives more grace. When we hurt others with our words, he gives more grace. As I was uh, apologizing to my adult child. I don't know what you call your adult child. My, well, whatever. As I was apologizing to this person that I love so dearly, I was able to apologize with sincerity, yet without condemnation. Because, you know, he does, 
God has seen this sin and has forgiven it. Therefore, I don't have to be intimidated nor condemned by it. It actually allows me to actually be more strong in my, my repentance. Because I don't have to hide. I don't have to hide. I don't have to hide. And I thought, well, he gives more grace. That's why I don't have to hide. Even when we hurt others, maybe the people we love with our own words. When we have flirted with the world, he gives more grace. When we've quarreled and become angry, he gives more grace. Alec Motier in his commentary in the message of James says the following, What a comfort in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect to our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. Do you, that alone, when I think about that, and I do think about that, I, I pair it with Romans 2, 4 of his kindness, and I think, oh my, how patient God has been with me. How patient. And he doesn't say, really? Pastor? 62? Christian for that many years? There's still patience. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. Paul Tripp in a book called Lead, it's a great book, and I paraphrase this a little bit because he's speaking to leaders, so I just paraphrased out broader. He said this, Beloved, your Savior has rescued you, is rescuing you, and will rescue you until that rescue is no longer needed which will be until my last breath. He has rescued, he is rescuing, and he will rescue. Folks, God's always active. He's always working. We did a series in Esther uh, last year, um, five-week series, and it was just wonderful. And what you have in Esther is because you never have God really mentioned. But God's always working. And sometimes he's working for years, five years, to do, to really save the people of Israel, which is ultimately to preserve the line of Christ, preserve redemptive history, but they're completely unaware. Everything's just spinning. And it's all politics and world and, 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 and arrogance and you have Haman and all these things that are just spinning, seemingly spinning out of control. And Esther has no awareness. It doesn't seem that Mordecai has any, aware, uh, any awareness. It doesn't even seem like they're originally heroes. She becomes a hero. She doesn't start that way. And yet God's working. God's always working. And he's always working to rescue. So the reality is, in that conflict that I had a few weeks ago, God was actually working to rescue me. It was a painful thing, but he was working to rescue me. And I feel rescued. It's why when I went to our pastoral team and said, hey, I want to give you an update of a conflict that just happened in my home. The reason I could do that was, you know, I believe God rescued me. I believe God was involved. It's not, okay, if I say this, how does this affect my reputation? My standing? No. That's worldly thinking. You're thinking like the world right now. You don't want to admit a mistake. 
And so you start to make caveats and excuses. No, it was wrong. (laughs) Why? Well, because I know God is rescuing. I feel his rescue, brothers and sisters. There's not certainly, uh, probably not a day that goes by, certainly not a week that goes by, where I don't sense God coming in and saying, I'm rescuing you again, Warren. I'm rescuing you. And I'm sort of rescuing you from yourself. That's the great part of the great rescue. Beloved, your Savior has rescued you, is rescuing you, and will rescue, uh, will rescue you until that rescue is no longer needed. So the question for you today is this. Where do you need more grace? Where do you need rescue? And if you were to say, okay, you've asked me questions. Why conflicts? What do I crave in conflicts? What do I typically crave? I can answer that question. And okay, where do I need more grace? Well, today, I think I need more grace here. Well, he will give more grace. He never lacks in his resources. This takes us to our third point. So we have the cause of conflicts, the promise of grace, and finally the requirement of humility. And this, this text bookends this, both in six, verse 6 and verse 10. So look at verse 6. He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then down in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So we have humility bracketed in this part of the text. There's bookends for this in the text. And what this does, is it contains a warning and a promise in verse 6. So humble yourselves before the Lord. Because why? He gives grace to the, uh, opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes or he gives grace. Folks, we need all the grace we can get. <laughs> so regularly I'm thinking, as I've watched the world do just confounding things in 2020, I often think this, Lord, except for the grace of God, there go I. I do not want to think of myself more highly than I, than I ought. If you had not been gracious to me, how might I be responding in these various crowds? What fears might control my life? So I, I feel pretty liberated. I, I don't fear a lot of things. And I think, yeah, why? Because God, you've just set me free. You've done something. You've been the liberating God. You know, I could be different. I could be different. Folks, you're, you're in a church where you're taught God's word faithfully. That's a gift. There's other places that's not the reality. And you see it because they're caught up in changing the world through human means. See, the song she sang, the, the exhortation shared, that made God real big. Steve, your, your accommodations of knowing, that made God, those things made God real big. Those things stabilize us. So why are we not out in crowds fearful or angry? Because God's done something. And so let's, let's be humble about it. What do we have that we've not received? We've received these things from the Lord. 
Now, James doesn't just tell us to be humble. He unpacks humility for us, right? We can all say, okay, be humble. That's sort of a common phrase in our church culture, right? Be humble. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Well, James says, okay, I want to talk to you about humility. Well, let's unpack it. So let's unpack humility a little bit. So here's what humility looks like. Well, verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves to God. Which to me means I'm bending my, my knee in loyalty and obedience and trust. Kim and I, as we were driving up to Lancaster today, out to Lancaster today, we were talking about there's some things that just don't make sense to us. Why'd this happen? Why'd that happen? Why'd this, another great Christian leader, it seems, fall? You know, why that? Why? I mean, God, what, you know, and you ask those questions. Well, where humility takes is saying, I will submit to God. I don't have answers for those questions. But I trust the one who does. And it's just outside of my pay grade. But I can imagine, had I been Mordecai, I would have had questions. Esther, I'm just a girl. Uh, a Jewish girl, a Hebrew girl. I've now been brought into the king's harem. I got questions. And yet, what's humility look like? We submit ourselves to God. We bend our knee in loyalty to God, obedience to God, and trust of God. And the Marines, Semper Fi, always faithful to God. <laughs> always faithful. I don't understand, but I will submit. Folks, you know, there's, there is peace. There is contentment. There is just richness. There's liberty when we say, I don't understand, and it's okay. I'm not being flippant with hard questions, but I don't have answers for some of the questions. And how do I trust? So humility means we submit. Humility is not just horizontal. So I said, okay, give me your input. Tell me about the It's, no, there's somebody bigger involved in this. And I submit myself to him. See, that's why when we're in conflict, we should be asking ourselves, ourselves the question, what's God doing right now? God's not passive. He's not inactive. God's here in the midst of this conflict for a redemptive purpose. What is that purpose? And will I submit to it? Or will I not? And if I not, it's really friendship with the world. I'm going to take up the world's arms and fight my battles on my own and for myself. So submit is part of what humility looks like. Resist is also part of what humility looks like. Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now I don't know about you, but there's times when I'm trying to resist temptation, it feels like the more you try to resist, the more the the power of the temptation increases. You know, sometimes temptations are like way out there in the radar but the moment you notice them, it's like the plane's heading to you. You know, that radar, that beep is going, you know, it's getting closer and it's getting a little bit more threatening and you're a little bit more, you know, being aware of it. It can just feel harder. I love this quote by Dan Doriani in his commentary in James. He said the following, suppose you are traveling on business. By the way, this could be a man or a woman. The day is done. And you return to your home room, uh, your hotel room, where pornographic movies are available. The lustful eye and the malice of Satan are against you. Resistance may be difficult, but it is not futile. If you resist the temptation, 
Remember, God says there's always a way out in 1 Corinthians 10. If you resist the temptation, he flees. If you succumb, Satan does not flee. This is a chilling comment to me. (laughs) He sits on the couch with you. And failure to resist on one occasion makes it harder to resist the next, next temptation. So what do we do? We recognize we're weak. And I've talked to enough men who travel, and this would be men who travel. They take action. Because they, they understand this. Humility says, I'm weak. And if I'm in certain situations, that temptation will overwhelm me. So I'm going to avoid that situation. So I know guys who have had TVs taken out of rooms or they have accountability partners and you're going to need to ask me. I'm going to be here, you know, in this hotel, in this city. You're going to ask me that night, can I call you? They take action. That's an expression of humility. So are you resisting temptation or resting in it? And then what else do we have as an expression of humility? Well, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a wonderful promise, isn't it? Draw near to God, and he won't hide. (laughs) God's not hiding from us. He's a revealing God. He's a self-disclosing God. Uh, He disclosed himself in the Word. In creation, he discloses himself. In the Word, he discloses himself. And ultimately, in Christ, he disclosed himself. You want to know what God looks like? You look at Jesus. Right? He shows you the Father. So what he came to, you want to know what God's like? Look at me and I'll show you the Father. So it's an invitation and a promise. It reflects the exhortation in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that what? That we might find, uh, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, but what about my sin? Oh, folks, the moment we say, but what about my sin? There's more grace. Because I grew up in a Christian home and I went to a Christian school Here's how this fun- misfunction, dysfunction for me. You'd sin, right? Grieve you over your sin a little bit, but really it was more probably self-pity and then self-fixing. And then I got to be good for a week. And if I'm good for a week, then I'll come back and be able to pray. Self-atoning. No, no, I need to draw near to God in the moment when I sin. In other words, the moment when I feel most disqualified to draw near to God is the moment I need to draw near to God. And what will I find from God in that moment of highest disqualification? I will find grace. He gives more grace. And in that, I won't be flipping about my sin, because my sin will probably grieve me more, but I'll have hope. I'll actually be strengthened to repent. So why I grieved over my last situation that I've expressed to you, I also had hope. I was not condemned. I was grieved. And I shared that in very specific ways and terms of the level. Had a hard time sleeping because of the grief I felt and the need to, I've got to reconcile. But I've also got to reconcile this way. I've, I believe, and I said things like this, my words did damage. My words are hurtful. I can't re, you know, pull the damage back. But I can ask for you to forgive. And I was so pleased when I heard my child say, Oh, Dad, in light of God's forgiveness of me, it would be wrong for me not to forgive you. I thought, oh, that's encouraging. But there was something of, oh, I, I, draw, I did draw near to God 
in a time when I felt most disqualified and he gave grace in my time of need. So folks, when you say, what about my sin? I would say, what about his grace? He gives more grace. Now, when you say draw near to God, have a plan, right? Nobody drifts to God. (laughs) We drift away. So we draw near to God. So you're not going to draw near without a plan, without intentionality. And then it goes on and says, cleanse, and I'm going to, I'm getting near the end here. Cleanse and purify yourselves, right? There's something of repent, be single-minded. This is an expression of, of one who's been humble before God. They now have turned to God. There, there is, in a sense, in a fresh way saying, I will submit to you. My knee bends yet again before you. And then in verse 9, we have these words, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Just wondering, how many people memorize that verse? <laughs> right? That doesn't tend to be in our go-to verses. But it's there for a reason. This is an expression of humility. I grieve over sin. I, I don't, I'm not flipping about it. I, I've turned from laughter to mourning and my joy or superficial joy, there's sort of gloom in there. It, I think this is what talking about. Humility means you're sorry over sin. What did David write in Psalm 50, uh, 51, his great repentance psalm after uh, he commits adultery with Bathsheba and plans the murder of Uriah? He says this in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. He didn't know Hebrews 4.16. But I bet you David could say, and I went to the throne of grace, and I found the grace I needed in my time of need. Was he broken? Yes. Did he repent? Yes. Was there grief in his heart? Absolutely. Folks, sorrow for sin is a good thing. I think American Christians, uh, we're learning how to lament. We don't lament well. Because, right, Americans are always up. We're always triumphant. And uh, things are always good. So there's this, that sense. So how do we lament? Have we learned to lament? You know, a third of the Psalms are about lament. <laughs> lament. We don't lament well. Um, <clears throat> there's a great book. What's it? Deep. What's the Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy? It's a great book about lament. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, about how to lament, when to lament, what causes lament, how lament can be biblical. See, lament's far different than self pity and condemnation. Self pity and condemnation in this conflict that I've described to you would have been disastrous, would not have been beneficial, would not have been redeeming or reconciling. But repentance was. Sorrow for sin can be a good thing. And if you're convicted by sin, you know, we're, we believe in the activity of the Holy Spirit. Please understand, any time that you're convicted of sin, that's an expression of the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. You should thank God for it. I think we skip that part and we go to condemnation or repent. We should be like, why am I aware that what I did was wrong? Because, you know, everybody around me is not aware. Those crowds aren't aware. People that are angry out there, they're not aware. You know, I'm in office relationships, school relationships, other relationships. They're not aware. I, why am I aware? I'm aware because the Holy Spirit's in me. 
I'm aware because God's done something to me. And God is rescuing me. So may we start with a point of, let's celebrate conviction of sin. Thank you, God, you're alive. Thank you that I can see what others don't always. And it's just, it, it doesn't have to be self-pity or condemnation. And then what do we have in verse 10? Well, humble yourselves before the Lord. Not only will he give you grace, he's going to give you grace, but actually in the end, he will exalt you. He will give you grace and he will exalt you. So brothers and sisters, in our time of need, in our time of greatest sense of disqualification, he gives more grace. Why? Because there's more grace in God than there is sin in us. And that's good news. Let's pray. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.